coming up on Ibogaine Uncovered. It is the power of story that breathes life into the numbers. Stories are what brought a room of over 100 people from very diverse backgrounds together last month in LaGrange, Kentucky. We were all there for an event called the Summit on Exploring Breakthrough Therapies for Opioid Use Disorder, which offered members of the community an opportunity to learn about potential treatments, research, and policy strategies. While that information was incredibly valuable, I'll tell you this. When the day was done, the feeling I left with wasn't inspired by statistics or bar graphs. It was inspired by the raw honesty of the people who shared their very personal stories, by the members of the audience who stood up and asked tough questions, and especially by the palpable sense of grief that we shared. My name is Amanda Siebert, and you're listening to I Begin Uncovered the podcast that explores the impact of one of the most powerful psychedelic medicines on the planet. Can Ibogaine really get to the root of our trauma? Join me as I ask practitioners, patients, researchers, and specialists about their experiences. Welcome back to Ibogaine Uncovered. I'm your host, Amanda Siebert. Today, before I recap an important event that took place last month in LaGrange, Kentucky, I'm going to be vulnerable with you. In May of 2019, after a year of sobriety and one day before he was set to start a new job, my cousin died of a fentanyl overdose, alone in his car in a McDonald's parking lot. His sudden and unexpected death devastated my family especially his parents, my aunt and uncle, who had spent several years doing everything they could to help him move beyond his addiction and live a life free from opiates. The feelings of hope and excitement my family had sustained throughout the period of his recovery were shattered, and we grieved, and still grieve, for a vibrant life cut short by substance use disorder and a toxic drug supply that has continued to take hundreds of thousands of lives. Across North America. He was 33 years old. I live in British Columbia, Canada, where the crisis has had such an overwhelming impact that overdoses are the leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 59. In the first 10 months of 2023, more than 2,000 people lost their lives to overdose in this province. But these statistics are nothing new. British Columbians like me have been listening to the increasing monthly tallies from our chief coroner since at least April of 2016, when our provincial government declared a public health emergency as a result of the ongoing overdose crisis. Since then, at least 13,300 British Columbians have died of a drug overdose. While harm reduction efforts have increased and some support services are offered, not a single policy measure has led to a decrease in overdose deaths. In fact, numbers have been rising steadily since the crisis was declared in the spring of 2016. Fentanyl was first detected in an overdose death in BC in 2012, 
the province's chief coroner, recently announced that after 13 years on the job, she's retiring, saddened by her agency's inability to sway policy to reduce the tragic impacts of toxic drugs on thousands of people. This crisis is not isolated to British Columbia. It exists in varying degrees in every Canadian province and American state, cutting across demographic lines and impacting urban and rural areas alike. 50,000 Americans died of overdose in 2015, and by 2021, that number more than doubled to over 106,000 people. To put that in perspective, imagine if the population of South Bend, Indiana, or Burbank, California, was wiped out in one year. That's 150 people per day. And 106,000 sons, mothers, daughters, fathers, aunts, uncles, friends, lost to overdose in one year. I find it's important to remind people when listing off statistics that these are real human beings we're talking about. They were loved. They're missed. They're not just numbers. We can become numb to numbers, especially after we hear them so many times. I say this because I think out of necessity, I've become a little numb to this crisis. I have watched it devastate my community for 10 years. As a journalist, I've covered its impact. Almost everyone I know has been affected by it in some way. It is, and this is putting it lightly, a lot to bear. But it's impossible to stay numb in the presence of others who share the pain of having lost a friend or family member to overdose. Last month, while visiting one of America's hardest-hit states, in the presence of so many people who knew and understood that pain, I felt it again for the first time in a while. Here's what I mean when I say hardest-hit. In Kentucky, the number of overdose deaths has increased 60% since 2019. That means in just four years, more than 9,000 people in the state have died of an overdose. The drug overdose death rate there is among the highest in the country, according to the CDC, fourth behind Louisiana, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Before I explain why I was in Kentucky, I need to rewind to May 2019. At this time, I was already covering the psychedelic space and aware that some people had been able to overcome the physiological need to use drugs with psychedelics like ayahuasca and ibogaine, but I wasn't entirely clear on what medicine would have best served my cousin, or if I'd known, whether I'd even be able to help him access it. Still, I felt immense guilt for not having spoken to him about psychedelics, and I wondered every day if they could have helped him. Then, three months after my cousin's death, I went to the premiere of a documentary made here in Vancouver called Dosed. It told the story of a woman, Adrienne, 
who struggled with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and a substance use problem that began not long after she first used heroin at age 15. In the film, Adrienne is approached by a close friend who had heard that using psychedelics might help her cease her use of opiates, which involved a dangerous mix of methadone, heroin, morphine, and fentanyl. At this point, she'd worked with therapists and tried detox centers, and while she'd been able to stave off cravings for periods of a few weeks or months at a time, nothing really stuck. After experimenting with psilocybin mushrooms in the film, underground practitioners recommended something more potent that would help Adrienne detox from opiates, iboga. I knew that this psychedelic could have been the one to help my cousin and so many others I knew who had died. Watching that documentary was illuminating, but it was hard. I so badly wished I'd learned about the local Iboga practitioners in the film a year or even six months previous. Now I carried the pain of losing my cousin prematurely, and the naive but visceral pain of knowing that there was something I maybe, possibly, could have done to help him. Hard as it was, it wasn't always has been the power of stories like Adrienne's that motivate me to continue doing this work. It is the power of story that breathes life into the numbers. As you'll hear in the upcoming recaps and clips, stories are what brought a room of over 100 people from very diverse backgrounds together last month in LaGrange, Kentucky. We were all there for an event called the Summit on Exploring Breakthrough Therapies for Opioid Use Disorder, which offered members of the community an opportunity to learn about potential treatments, research, and policy strategies. While that information was incredibly valuable, I'll tell you this. When the day was done, the feeling I left with wasn't inspired by statistics or bar graphs. It was inspired by the raw honesty of the people who shared their very personal stories, by the members of the audience who stood up and asked tough questions, and especially by the palpable sense of grief that we shared. We shared those two types of pain I mentioned earlier. The pain of having said goodbye to a loved one as a result of an overdose, and the pain of wishing that they'd have had an opportunity to access the drug we spent all day talking about. I began. I've never been to a psychedelic event that opened the day with a prayer. Let's say this was a trip of firsts for me on many fronts. This was, after all, happening in Kentucky, and I learned very quickly that the room was packed with Christians who believed that psychedelics could potentially play a role in improving the overdose crisis in the bluegrass state. As someone who was raised going to church and never saw that behavior modeled before me, the reality that people of faith could overcome their fear of psychedelics and even embrace them in a state as deeply religious as Kentucky kind of excited me. This was also one of the first psychedelic events I've attended where I didn't feel like I was in an echo chamber. While there were certainly folks in attendance who had heard of Ibogaine, this was not a room full of yes men and women, but curious people who wanted to learn more about why their government is interested in pursuing Ibogaine research. So if you're not clear on that little piece of news, here's a quick recap. 
In 2022, Kentucky reached settlements with opioid producers and distributors, including big names like Johnson, Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens, totaling $842 million for their role in exacerbating the overdose crisis. With those settlements, the state established the Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission, and the commission essentially gets to decide what to do with the money. In the fall, they heard testimony from military veterans, including Tommy Aceto, advocates including Beyond's Talia Eisenberg, who we'll hear from shortly, psychologists like Dr. Joseph Barsuglia, and even politicians. The commission is currently considering whether it should allocate $42 million of the $842 million settlement towards Ibogaine research. As of the recording of this episode, the vote has not yet taken place. But if it does, the goal is to make it possible for Ibogaine to receive FDA approval as a breakthrough therapy, the same designation given to MDMA for PTSD in 2017 and psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression in 2019. There's a lot more to the story of how the psychedelic drug Ibogaine was put on the state's radar, but we'll save that for another episode. Now, I'm not about to repeat everything that was said at the summit. If I did that, we'd be here for hours. What I will do is highlight some key points made by a few presenters and share a few moments that stood out to me as poignant. Stories that in many cases move the room to tears. After the morning prayer, the day began with a video address from MAPS founder Rick Doblin, who couldn't join us in the flesh as the summit coincided with his 70th birthday. Rick began by making the case that state-funded research initiatives, like the one up for debate in Kentucky, would make sense, especially because the money would be coming from the same pharmaceutical companies responsible for the opioid crisis and that, if successful, Kentucky could inspire other states to follow suit. At this point, MAPS hasn't done a whole lot of research on Ibogaine. That part of the discussion was taken on by Dr. Deborah Mash, a previous Ibogaine uncovered guest who spent more than 30 years researching Ibogaine. She spoke about her work of advancing molecules to medicine. I won't go over the finer points of her research here. You can hear those in episode 14 but I will mention a few things that stuck out to me during her presentation. Calling the crisis a chemical weapon attack on our country, Dr. Mash told the audience that she never believed drug addiction to be a moral failing because, and I quote, I've been able to look at a human brain after death. Today, we're able to profile all of the synaptic plasticity in the brain. We're able to look at the genetic changes that put us at risk for developing addiction. I'm sure for those in the audience who've been led to believe that addiction is a moral failing, her words brought comfort. Although the majority of Dr. Mash's presentation focused on her research, she didn't miss the opportunity to capitalize on the power of story. Speaking to her own experience with addiction, losing her father to alcoholism at age 56, and having to watch him white-knuckle it through the withdrawals. Later, she told the story of watching three men undergo Ibogaine treatment in Amsterdam in the 90s, including one man who was coming off of 120 milligram maintenance doses of methadone, which is a pretty significant dose. To her complete astonishment, 
he experienced no withdrawals after his treatment. She said, the next day he ate a big breakfast. Who eats in the midst of opioid withdrawal? No one. Harm reduction advocates in the room shook their heads in disbelief at the idea of someone eating so soon into what would normally be a withdrawal period. The power of story came through in Juliana Mulligan's presentation, too. Juliana shared that she left opioids behind for good after doing Ibogaine in 2011. Unfortunately, that treatment took place in an unsafe clinic in Guatemala, where she was given double the standard dose of Ibogaine and ended up with heart complications that landed her in the hospital for two weeks. What happened to Juliana was avoidable had simple safety protocols been followed, but it was not for nothing. It inspired her to get involved and learn more about the heart and the cardiotoxic effects of Ibogaine. She's been working in the space ever since and advocates for an approach that uses integrative harm reduction psychotherapy, a protocol that doesn't push a particular agenda, but is rooted in the principles of harm reduction, which is whatever works. I discussed this protocol in depth with Dr. Andrew Tatarski in episode four. Juliana said that while a more traditional 12-step approach works for many people, she'd also seen it re-traumatize. Integrative harm reduction therapy allows people to experiment with different things, something she says helps them to trust themselves, potentially for the first time in their lives. Not everyone in the room shared stories of substance use disorder. Cipriana Kwan, one half of the Kwan sisters and the co-founder of the Chew on Something podcast, which she hosts with her sister, TK Wonder, spoke about her experience of using psychedelic medicines, including Ibogaine, to overcome a decade of physical, sexual, and mental abuse she endured as a child. Cipriana, a model, former Vogue writer, and advocate, has been using her platform to speak on diversity, inclusivity, and the power of sisterhood for over a decade. In Kentucky, she described what it was like to come to terms with her trauma for the first time since it took place while under the influence of psilocybin mushrooms. She also talked about the way her perspective of psychedelics has shifted since she began working with them. Here's a clip. By the time that I had my first psychedelic session, which was a mix of psilocybin and MDMA, it was the first time I ever thought, I'm 45 years old today, I was 37 when I had my first experience, and that was the first time that I ever thought about the use that I survived. So I did it in a sound meditation with a very highly vetted facilitator in a very safe space with my partner, who I'm still with today. So I did my research. If anyone knows me, I do researches on menus. So like when I go out to dinner to eat, so I highly vetted where I was going, the space to make sure it was safe. During that whole eight hour experience, I cried. <laughs> and it wasn't a loud wailing, it was just tears were flowing down. And I asked myself, why was I crying this entire eight hours? And it said, because a voice in my head had popped up, but I knew it was me saying that because if I cried, 
when I was a child, the abuse would become worse because it's what my father told us. Like, do not cry or you will suffer even more. My mother was unaware of the abuse that was happening at home because she was working so much. And on top of that, we also had to deal with racism. I lived in Baltimore, so I lived in the suburbs area, and the KKK was very prevalent in that area. So not only was I dealing with abuse, I was also dealing with abuse regarding the society that I was living in just because of the color of my skin. So that was also another trauma I was dealing with. And I just have to say that before I pass it on, that I was a woman that had never tried any single drug in my life, except maybe two pops of cannabis, which I did not like before I was introduced to psychedelics. I was very hesitant about any kind of drugs. Um, I've also changed the way I the language regarding psychedelics, I don't call it drugs, I call it medicine, because that's what it is. The notion that psychedelics are medicine was emphasized with every presentation and by every panelist. Beyond founder, Talia Eisenberg shared her story of bouncing between rehabilitation facilities and fighting the physiological need for opiates. Before learning about Ibogaine one day from a friend, she talked about how it set her on the path of not only overcoming substance use disorder, but also discovering her calling. Maybe it saved my life by keeping me in these centers, but after a couple of weeks, I would leave and I would have this physiological need, even though I didn't want to, to go and find an opiate. And that's when I realized it was something in, a, in my brain. I needed something and continued to relapse for a couple of years and would go in and out, or I like to say lapse, not relapse. Then I ran into a friend of mine that I socialized with in New York City. He was doing great, he was married, was building a company that he was excited about, and he had told me, he had, he had light in his eyes, he had told me that he had done this obscure African psychedelic called uh, Ibogaine in Mexico. So I, at the age of 22, got online and looked for some a place to go and back then you know it was very unheard of it's still unheard of but i found a place i wouldn't call it a facility and i think in hindsight they didn't have the level of medical support and safety therapeutic guidance preparation but somehow it worked for me and I had a profound experience in a single day where I saw not only did I experience the relief which is a miracle in itself and the no desire to use the cravings were gone I didn't have to go through the sweating the shaking the diarrhea that kept me always going back but I also had a, a transformation of spirit if you want to call it that uh, I saw why I was here, my grandmother and her suffering, and the love that she was able to give, even though she existed, survived one of the, her family was murdered. And, and I saw all of that and, and humanity suffering, really, which I think I was holding on to. And I found a deep purpose, which, is, which I think is what some of these other maybe opiate replacement therapies, although they save lives, they don't help you get to the core of the issue, which was for me unworthiness, and I was lost. I didn't know why I came here, and everyone has, a, I believe, a unique mission here, and most people aren't in touch with that. So it put me in touch with my purpose. We also heard from Ben Doc Askins. 
a Kentucky Army veteran, physician assistant, and author with nearly two decades of experience practicing and teaching tactical and expeditionary medicine in the military and provides ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in Louisville. He's one of the only clinicians in the state certified by MAPS to provide psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. He also spoke about learning his true calling and purpose in medicine, sharing the story of how he switched from a focus on emergency medicine to mental health and suicidality after losing a close friend and witnessing the impacts of the mental health and overdose crises on his community and state. So I was going to go into emergency medicine, and during the second phase of IPAD, I got a call from an old friend about a mutual friend of ours, the executive officer at my old unit, had died by suicide. He was a good man and a good friend, husband, and father. I still wear the memorial bracelet with his name on Major Travis Rabbit from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, the news just gutted me. We had so much in common, I couldn't imagine him dying by suicide. But I had a 12 hour shift to work at the ER the next day, so I got up and went to work, like I always do. The patients that came in that day was an intentional overdose. This beautiful young lady just had enough of this planet for some reason or another. Now, like I knew what to do in an emergency medicine situation to innovate her, to stabilize her. It took me three tries because I was so nervous, you know, PA student, going for the innovation. And uh, the prognosis medically and psychologically isn't very good after that first suicide attempt, right? It's not great for your brain to not be breathing for that long and to ingest that amount of substances. Just mental health-wise, the first time you try it indicates that you'd probably be willing to try it again at a later date. Because I had the Master of Divinity degree, I managed to talk the director of the emergency room into letting me go with the chaplain to sit in with the family after we stabilized this young lady. And I met her husband and her little girl. She was the same age as one of my little girls. And he was my age. Like, he could have been me. That could have been my family. Something inside me just broke. And I just wanted to do something about suicidality instead of going into emergency medicine. Although a large focus of the event was on substance use disorder, the topic of addiction more broadly came up often. Cipriana reminded us that one can be addicted to more than just opiates. We can be addicted to substances, but we can also be addicted to maladaptive behaviors certain coping mechanisms and thought patterns. Consider this definition borrowed from Dr. Gabor Matei's website. Addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person craves, finds temporary relief of, or pleasure in, but suffers negative consequences as a result of, and yet has difficulty giving up. In brief, craving, relief, pleasure, suffering, impaired control. Note that this definition is not restricted to drugs, but could encompass almost any human behavior, from sex, to eating, to shopping, to gambling, to extreme sports, to TV, to compulsive internet use. The list is endless. In Cipriana's case, sugar became an addiction, and a way to cope with the pain of having endured 10 years of abuse at the hands of her father 
negatively impacting her physical and mental health for years, and to such a degree that she was forced to make serious changes. Cipriana also discussed the importance of integration, the idea that the most important personal work takes place after the medicine experience, and noted that, as a Black woman, she wasn't aware of the variety of integration practices that were available to her until later in life. She discussed the importance of sustaining the history of plant medicines, particularly in the context of communities of color, and how what's happening in Kentucky represents an opportunity to include BIPOC communities in ways they haven't been included before. I look at addiction as not being weak. I think it's a sign that people are trying to survive and cope in ways that may be detrimental to themselves, but it is a way to survive another day. It's just about reteaching and learning new tools that will help you cope in a sustainable and beneficial way to your life. I know also for me as a Black woman coming from the BIPOC communities, I had no idea about different therapeutic healing modalities. And though I say that psychedelics has saved my life, it is the integration that goes along with using. I do, I use and a lot of integration, integrated tools that I also learned at Beyond. If you asked me seven years ago what was cold plunging and breath work and sound meditation and what was eboga and psilocybin and I would have been psilocybin what? Like I just would have no idea. I mean that just goes to show you that a lot of communities and BIPOC communities especially and a lot of these plant medicines are based on ancestral roots of people of color. So I also do think that we need to keep that conversation attached to what is amazing what's happening in Kentucky. I freaking love it. Uh, but we do have to make sure that we sustain the history of these plant medicines. A few of the afternoon's presenters called on the audience to take action by speaking up. Karen Butcher, a member of the Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission, lost her son to an opioid overdose in 2020. She called on others in the audience to make their support for Ibogaine research in the state known to lawmakers. We need to see support. We see naysayers, but we've got to have support to Brian and the commission members. I represent citizens at large. I really want to know what do people want. I lost my son in 2020. I would take him right now to whatever country I needed to to get this treatment. We have done too much money, the federal government has let us down for too long. We've lost too many people. I'm sick and tired of hearing people say, well, it takes so much time to get good. Look how much time we've spent doing what we've done. So I'm begging you to speak up, speak out, come to commission meetings, and talk to commission members. Thank you. Doc Askins, who earned a Master of Divinity degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, talked about speaking with pastors and religious leaders curious about his new line of work and encouraged people in the audience to put down their long-held stigma and fear and talk with folks in their lives about psychedelics, even and especially the people who they might deem skeptical. The sorts of conversations that are happening in this room just need to happen everywhere that you go and the opportunity presents itself. You would be amazed at the people who you think wouldn't want to talk to you about psychedelics 
that are not only curious about it, but are just waiting for the chance to tell you their trip story or something, right? Like, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and you wouldn't believe how many pastors and professors and very conservative people are sliding into my DMs on Facebook to ask all sorts of questions. Hey, what's, what's this mushroom thing you're doing now or whatever? I'm not doing any mushroom things, man. Like, I have a medical license and mushrooms are still illegal in my state, right? But let me explain to you a little bit about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or, or some of those sorts of things. So, like, whatever fear there is in you, whatever stigma there is that keeps you from having meaningful conversations with other people at the Thanksgiving table or whatever the case may be, just get over it and have the conversations because you'd be surprised how many of these people are just waiting for the chance to talk to you about it. Just get over it and have the conversations. I think for the most part, this is good advice. Conversation can breed a healthy curiosity about the topic. But what about in communities that have been disproportionately criminalized for drug use, where it might not feel safe to have those conversations? A few audience members expressed both fear and frustration around access to psychedelic education and treatment in their communities. And an important question was asked by different members of the audience at several points throughout the day. How can we ensure that if Kentucky decides to allocate funds for research, psychedelic-assisted therapy will be made available to the communities that need it most, particularly to BIPOC communities who historically haven't been included in psychedelic research. How do we get this information to people who don't have access to it, or to the funds to pursue it? Cipriana Kwan had a few suggestions. Especially in spaces like this, listening to our stories, and then when you have $42 million allocated, can we take some of those funds and dedicate it to communities like in Kentucky, which Talia told me about. There's a black community in Kentucky that's devastated by opioid addiction. Can we take some of those funds and allocate it to helping those communities, helping them to become aware of healing modalities and therapeutic ways regarding psychedelic medicines, regarding scholarships, Maybe because that's when I went to Beyond. I have the experience with founders, Talia and Tom, incredible people that do offer scholarships and they work with unpoached medicine. On one hand, you can, you can vertify places that are working with unpoached medicine and Beyond is one of those places. So I think also too, when we come down to the nitty gritty, especially regarding funds, it would be great if people take time to really think about how they could give back to those communities because our communities have a lot to offer and we're devastated by intergenerational trauma, hundreds and hundreds of years of it. While it's still unclear if and how the state of Kentucky will allocate $42 million to Ibogaine research, what is clear is that alternative solutions and approaches to addiction treatment are beyond necessary. Here in BC and in the state of Kentucky, while the political landscape may be vastly different, the resounding message from communities affected by the overdose crisis is clear. It's time to do something different. Limited available options don't work and often do the exact opposite of what they are intended to do. 
keeping people stuck in a cycle of substance use. Repeating this important point over and over to people who write laws is critical. We can't keep doing the same thing. The first step in approaching this crisis in a new way is humanizing those who are affected, empathizing with them, and believing that they are worthy of a treatment option beyond what's currently available to them. I don't believe that happens with statistics. I don't believe it happens by sharing ever-increasing monthly death tolls. I believe that it can happen through story and by sharing our pain. I know that this episode has been a little different from existing episodes. When I started this podcast, I'm not sure I intended to get so personal. But what I've learned in a little over a year since we kicked off I Begin Uncovered is that the power of story can sustain hope. It can inspire people to make changes. It can reach people who you thought were way out of reach. My hope in sharing part of my story and snippets of stories I heard last month in Kentucky is that you might be inspired to speak out against broken systems, to speak up for solutions, and to seek out connections in your community. If support for an alternative treatment like Ibogaine can exist in a place like Kentucky, I believe it can exist anywhere. You've been listening to Ibogaine Uncovered. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify and Apple, leave a review, or share it with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by Beyond and produced by Eamon Armstrong mixed by Trevor Coulter and edited by Ariel Villafane. Beyond is the world's premier network of medically-based Ibogaine treatment facilities for addiction, depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Beyond's mission is to help people end chemical and behavioral dependency and to end the suicide epidemic with psychotherapeutic treatment and psychedelic plant medicine innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical advice and does not necessarily reflect Beyond's views on mental health treatment or personal development. For inquiries and further information, please visit beyondibegain.com and make an inquiry using the web form or email beyond at hello at beyondibegain.com.